Let's start this sermon with a word of prayer. Let's all bow our heads. Father God in heaven, we thank you so much for this bright, beautiful, shining day. This day that you've blessed us with, Lord, to come into your house, to glorify your name, and to learn more about you and what you would have us to do as your people. I pray that you would uh, bless my words, Lord, that through me the Holy Spirit would be speaking and not, not so much myself, Lord, and that the congregation would be blessed by it, and that their ears would be open and their hearts would be opened as well. I thank you so much, Lord, for all your wonderful blessings and the gifts that you've given to your people that are so undeserving. I pray all these things in the blessed name of Jesus Christ, your Son, our Savior. Amen. Amen. So on the topic of a uh, little bit of sleepiness in the house today, there was once this little boy, and he asked his pastor if he knew why they always served coffee after the sermon. And well, the little boy, he responded, you know what, pastor, I think I know. It's to get the people awake before they drive home. <laughs> but hopefully with today's sermon, we, there won't be anybody falling asleep. Amen. So today's sermon is titled, Do You Need a Church? Now that's kind of a rhetorical question, because I think we should all know the, the answer to that, don't we? Yes. I think the answer is yes. And today, that sermon kind of tackles that topic. Do you need a church? Do you need the church? Amen. Before we get started, I, Jamie's kind of started it with uh, quite a few years ago. He enjoys statistics, and I kind of enjoy statistics too. And it's kind of interesting listening to them, seeing, you know, getting some leads out to the earth and uh, other people inhabiting it and seeing what's going on out there especially since the United States, North America, and Canada are largely our people, all Israelites. So let's see what these surveys have to say pertaining the church. So this is a Canadian one. That's why I brought up Canadians. But still, make no mistake, Canadians are just as much Israelites as many people here in the Americas. So 81% of Canadians surveyed agreed with the following comment. I don't think you need to go to church in order to be a good Christian. 81% of Canadians. 70% 70 agreed with this statement. My private beliefs about Christianity are more important than what is taught by any church. 84% of those Canadians surveyed said they believe in God. However, only 20% actually attend church on a weekly basis from 84 to 20. And here's the catch. 77% of those surveyed identified themselves specifically with a Christian church. So out of all those Canadians, and I don't think America's too far behind. In fact, these uh, surveys are from a couple years ago. I dare say that we're a little bit worse off than now, sadly. So why are so many people avoiding the church? Well, according to statistics, there are many people who are positive about God, but negative about the church. Why is that? What is it that keeps them so far away? Now, let me ask you all a personal question. Don't worry, I, I don't want anybody to raise their hand or answer out loud, but why are you here? What are you all doing sitting here today? Why do you belong to this church? I'm not asking why you come to church. Hopefully we should all remember why. 
But why are you a member or a regular attendee of this or even any church? Sometimes the reason why people avoid church is a little easier to express than the question I just asked. So let's look at some of those reasons. Number one, I'm sure that a lot of you who have talked with people who say, oh, I, I don't need a church. I don't need to go to church. I don't need that. Some of these answers you might have heard before. How about number one? The church is filled with hypocrites. We all know what hypocrites are. Hypocrites are someone who says that, oh, I do, I believe in this. I do this thing. But then they go and do the opposite of what they just said. But it's true sometimes, isn't it? When we begin to live in ways which clearly contradict God's calling and teaching, isn't that being hypocritical? However, we know that God's word calls saints on the one hand and the sinners on the other hand. Once again, the word sin in the original New Testament means to miss the mark. You've missed the mark. God has called us to live one way because that's how we were designed to live. And when we live differently, we miss that mark. That's what the Bible calls sin. Goals, priorities, lifestyles which miss that target. The reason, the purpose for which we were originally created. Now, if we're honest with ourselves, there are times when Christians miss the mark. Sometimes frequently, in fact. Times when we act contrary to what we believe. Sometimes there is hypocrisy in the church. But, unfortunately, that is a normal part of our Christian walk. Everybody sins. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. None of us are perfect. If our objective is to reach those who don't know God, if we are not perfect people, then there will be conflict, differences, people acting in ways contrary to what God's Word teaches. My friends, we are all on a journey together. None of us have arrived there yet, as far as I know. Is there anybody here perfect? Have we arrived at that point in our lives where we've obeyed all the commands of God and we can just sit happy in our pews and think, ah, I'm perfect now. No, I, I didn't think so. No, that's, it's impossible. It truly is impossible for us to be perfect. So perfect people are not welcome in this church. Only those like us who are searching, growing, and recognize that they missed the mark. That's the type of people that we need to be around. That's the mindset we have to be having, is that we've missed the mark. But we need to search. We need to grow. We need to move forward and do better. <clears throat> How about another reason? Reason one was they're filled with hypocrites. How about number two? All they want is money. They pass the collection plate around a lot. You know, after the communion services in many mainstream churches, this is actually an issue. And you'd be surprised at how unrepentant the church is about just money, money, money. I want your money. Hireling preachers. Now this church has been blessed beyond measure. It truly has. Because you'd be hard-pressed to find out if we'd been in debt, this church. The people here have a giving heart given to them by God. God works mightily in our hearts to bring forth an attitude that knows that everything we own here, we don't actually own. It's all God's. We're just stewards of it. 
So how easy it is when we have that mindset to give back to God that which was already His. He doesn't ask for much. Our government asks for more than God asks. But for mainstream churches, when they make money the main reflector of an individual's spirituality, which you can find those who give the most in the church, they're afforded more kindnesses, more limelight, more show. How about number three? Church is boring or irrelevant. Church is boring or irrelevant. It's true sometimes, isn't it? Hopefully not all the time, especially when we're children. Little children, they find it boring and irrelevant. Now, let's think spiritually. If children find it boring and irrelevant, what does that say about our spiritual life if we also find church boring and irrelevant? Are we spiritually infants? Or are we spiritually mature? When we fail to demonstrate the practical reality of our faith, when we fail to teach what, biblical, what the biblical purpose of the church is, when we fail to understand our times and the culture that we live in, and fail to be creative in building bridges which help people see the importance and the validity of the church, then those who are fair in that view that we are archaic, boring, and irrelevant may be correct in their analysis. What's going on in our church that makes people think that it's boring or irrelevant? All right, number four. That church, you know, they talk about love, but when I went there, they were very unfriendly towards me and one another. This has to be the worst possible indictment of the church. When the very ingredient, which is to be our hallmark, is completely void from our relationships, we've stopped being a church. When there is no love in the church, we're not a church anymore. Jesus himself said this, By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. Alright, we've looked at a couple reasons now why some people don't come to church. Now let's look at some reasons why we should. Let's look at the other end of the spectrum. First and foremost, most important reason, of course, is because God commands it. It's a command. Now, Ezekiel, you might be saying, where in the Bible does it say, thou shalt go to church? Well, all right, bear with me. Let's turn in our Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. Oh, I am sorry, I forgot to start the timer. I'll have to take a little bit of time off there for... Well, while you guys are turning to Exodus chapter 20, I'll go ahead and get this timer fixed. Alright, Exodus chapter 20, and we're going to be looking at verses 10 through 11. Exodus chapter 20, verses 10 through 11. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work, thou nor thy son nor thy daughter, thy manservant nor thy maidservant, nor thy cattle, nor thy stranger that is within thy gates. 
For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day. Wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. So there's a command of God setting aside a special day for his people. Now, you, you might be saying, well, there's still nothing in there that says anything about going to church. All right, let's go a little bit further. Let's go to Leviticus chapter 23, all right? The next book over, Exodus, Leviticus, over by the end of Leviticus is chapter 23. A lot of you should be familiar with this one because it has, it houses all the festival commands. We're going to learn something about uh, these festivals. So, of the festivals, if some of you might not know it, but the weekly Sabbath is actually a festival appointed of the Lord. These festivals that the entire assembly of Israel attended. So for those who say they don't need a church, look to the examples of our forefathers, our Israelite forefathers. All right, so let's drill down in Leviticus chapter 23, verses 1 through 3. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them concerning the feasts of the Lord, which ye shall proclaim to be holy convocations. Even these are my feasts. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of rest, and holy convocation. Ye shall do no work therein. It is the Sabbath of the Lord in all your dwellings. Now, the word I want you all to pay attention to there is the word convocation. Now, that's a little bit of a complex word, maybe an archaic one, an older word. So let's, let's drill into it. So it's in the Strong's word number 4744, and it's the Hebrew word mikra, M-I-Q-R-A, mikra. And you know what it means? It means a public meeting. A public meeting. So some of you might be saying, well, I've got my family here. We can just have a meeting in our house. That's a private meeting. That's not a public meeting. This, what we are having today, is a public meeting. This is a convocation of God's people. Make no mistake. So that's just one area. That's just one area that we've got evidence of God commanding us to gather together. Why don't we get another one? Let's get a second one. Turn all with me over now to Hebrews, over in the New Testament. I'm sure many of us are familiar with this verse. But we've also got to be looking at more than just one witness, two or three witnesses. So, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much more as ye see the day approaching. Now, there's a lot going on in this verse. There's a lot that needs to be talked about. But we'll start with one word. Assembling. Assembling. Now, if at any point, you know, you think that some of these words are a little bit light in meaning in the English definition, it always helps to go ahead and look and see what the actual original language derivative is. So in this case, we're actually reading Greek. And let's look at what that Greek word is. It's from the Strong's Word, 1997. And it is the word episunagage. Episunagage. All right? Which means 
a complete collection, specifically the meeting of Christians for worship, an assembling, a gathering together. A gathering together. That's two places now where we've seen that it is commanded to gather together to worship God and glorify his name. So that word, episunagage, some of you guys might have noticed that there's actually a similar word, even in the English, that we can find. It kind of sounds like synagogue, right? Sunagage, synagogue. Well, you know why? It's because the Greek root words are related. Very much so, in fact. So what is the word synagogue? It's the same thing. It's an assembly of people, albeit usually Judeans when mentioned in the New Testament, but also by analogy of Christians. An assembly of Christians. So there's just three spots there in the Bible that it's irrefutable. God commands us to meet together. We need to do the best that we can to come together as a church and put off as much as possible this individualism and stand together, work out those differences. Because when we stand alone, we make ourselves easier targets for the devil. So let's go over to the New Testament now. Let's look at 1 Peter. Our brother Nathan actually used this uh, verse in his sermon yesterday. So hopefully we should, all should be familiar with it. It's 1 Peter 5, verse 8. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeming who he, seeing, seeking whom he may devour. Now, I know we don't have any lions here in Missouri. Maybe some mountain lions, but they're not as beefy and as uh, dangerous, I don't think, as the ones that our forefathers met over in their lands. Now, albeit, we still know how lions hunt, don't we? How do they hunt? They find herds, all right? Herds. That herd, it's tough to penetrate. You know, a lion's going to go in there and it's going to get stomped even if it's just a bunch of um, antelope or a bunch of uh, water buffalo or whatever they're hunting, they're going to get stomped because altogether they are strong enough to fight off those lions. So what does the lion look for? He looks for the weak one off by himself. He looks for the sick one that's easy prey, the one that isn't staying with the herd, staying with the shepherd. Why does God call us sheep? Jesus is our shepherd. When we stray away from the sheepfold and the shepherd, we get picked off by Satan. It makes it easier. He, he licks his chops and he goes, hmm, there's another easy one. Let's go get him. Let's go get him. So altogether, there are many valid reasons that we've looked at of why people choose not to go to church. And I've hopefully brought forth some reasons why we should. Let's look at some more. Now, according to statistics, our situation seems pretty dismal. Those first statistics I brought forth, are, they're sad. Our country is truly in a sad state. But does that mean that we're just supposed to quit? Does that mean we uh, pop up a for sale sign over here in front of the church and, well, we pack up, we, we did our best, 
It's just futile. Nothing we can do. Should we keep our doors open? Do we seek to improve? Why do we belong to this church? If we look for an exterior motive, for our primary reason, then we'll be off target. Don't get me wrong. People should get something out of belonging to a church. There is something you get out of it. Church ought to be a place where people feel accepted and cared for. It ought to be a place where they learn important practical truths, difficult truths. That might hurt your feelings a little bit. It ought to be a place where they're built up, where your abilities and your skills are nurtured and developed. These reasons are good. However, they're, not, they're still not the primary reasons why we belong. I'm sure a lot of us have heard in the New Testament a passage from uh, Mark, who is a certain young scholar, I'm sorry, in Mark, where a certain young scholar asked Jesus, what was the most important commandment? And hopefully we all know what uh, Jesus' answer is, but let's turn there. So it's going to be Mark chapter 12 and verse 30. Now, it's interesting that Jesus uses this uh, verse here in verse 30 as an example, because you know where it comes from, actually? It comes from Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 6. So let's read this. Mark chapter 12, verse 30. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. That's why we're here. Loving God bringing Him pleasure, worshiping Him, valuing Him above everything else in our life as His children. That's our purpose being here. As Pastor was saying, Jesus is the reason for the season. I know that's used a lot in Christmas, but it's a catchy little jingle, so. But Jesus is the reason for everything that we do here. But there's more. There's more. So, that second verse. What's the next, our next purpose? That's our main purpose. Let's make that our main, main purpose. Let's look at our secondary purpose. It continues on down in the next verse, verse 31. And the second is like, namely, this. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. There is none other commandment greater than these. Our second purpose in life is quite clear then, made in Scripture, spoken by Jesus. We are to love our neighbor as ourselves. Jesus was saying that the natural consequence of loving God and being in a right relationship with Him will also apply to loving your neighbor. If you truly love Jesus, that second one comes naturally. You don't have to work at it. So you might be asking, well, what does this have to do specifically with the church? Like I said before, everything. It's our primary purpose. So let's look at that neighborly love, that brotherly love. You see, love requires close relations, close-up relations. God himself created the church in order for us to have a secure place to express our love and concern for our neighbor and where we can, in turn, be loved and cared for. I know some of us have heard of a long-distance relationship, as it's called, where 
Two lovers dedicate themselves to that love no matter how far away they are from each other. But you know what? It's hard. It's really hard. When that person isn't physically there, it's very difficult. And that's the same way of when you're not in a church. You're in a long-distance relationship with, if you're lucky, anybody. Whereas in a church, you see them at least every week. If not more, depending on how involved you are. And that love, it grows. It can grow. Alright, let's go over to the New Testament and let's, uh, let's look at another verse. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 1. We're to turn to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5. Having predestinated us under the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, wherein he hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he hath purposed, in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. God's unchanging plan, it's been that God had, the God's, God doesn't apply to time like we do. So you see, God created time. So we have a very limited, of, limited look or view when it applies to time. God doesn't exist in time because he created it. We exist in time. We have to obey time. God does not. God knows everything because of this and has known everything since the foundation of the world. So God's, literally his unchanging plan has always been to adopt his people into his family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. And this gives him great pleasure. So what does it mean to be adopted into Christ's family? It means becoming a part of the church. It doesn't mean he's adopting the world, no. No, you're becoming a part of Christ in the church. So unfortunately, many of those surveyed in our earlier poll, they mentioned that they, they don't know what God's word teaches. I'm sure some of us have heard of uh, Rick Warren in his book, The Purpose Driven Life. There's a quote in it that says, The Christian life isn't simply about believing, it's also about belonging. It's not just about believing, it's about belonging. We belong to Christ's church not because we want to, just as we cannot choose not to belong because of our own personal choice. We belong because God has drawn us to it, and because he has said it is important to belong to it. We all know the doctrine of preordination, where he calls us. We don't say, hey Jesus, I want to be a part of your family. I want to be a part of your church. No, it doesn't work that way. No, it works. Jesus says, I will call you. I will give you a heart to love me. I will give you a heart to love my church, if you'll obey me. So the church... What is the church, specifically? So, what we're in today, it's, let's see, we've got some drywall. Behind the drywall, we've got some boards. I don't see any bricks anywhere, but we've probably got some concrete under the carpet here. Is that what makes up a church? No, it's not. So, who owns the church? So, the, 
this church is probably written under the name of Church of Israel. The Church of Israel owns this church. But who really owns the church? Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He calls it my church. My church. Now, let's all turn uh, over in the New Testament and see what Jesus has to say in this situation. Because he said something about his church. Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 19. When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Well, some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee, that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the kingdoms of the heaven, I'm sorry, the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Jesus says, I will build my church. This is Jesus' church. Now, verse 18, some people get a little bit confused because, uh, well, you have Peter in the first part, and then all of a sudden Jesus says, upon this rock I'll build my church. And of course, you know that Peter, Petra, means rock. But Jesus isn't saying that Peter is the church. No, he's saying, upon this rock, me, Jesus Christ, I will build my church. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. He is the church. So who does the building? Jesus Christ does. Who does the calling for the building? Jesus Christ does. You see, the church was so close to Jesus' heart that he called her his bride. In Ephesians, Paul said that Jesus loved her and died for her. That's how important the church is to him. He loved her and gave his life for her. If Jesus loves his church that much, how much do you love your church? And if you don't love your church enough to die for her as Jesus Christ, that's pretty intense. Maybe there's something wrong there. How can a Christian say, I have no use for a church? That'd be like saying, Jesus, I love you, but not your bride. She's ugly. She's horrible. I can't stand her. No thanks. I don't want anything to do with your bride, Jesus. Just you. Imagine if you said that to somebody's uh, husband. You might get, a, might get a black eye, depending on who it is. So how can you say, Jesus, I'm committed to you, but not her? You see, there's an intimate, inseparable union between Jesus Christ and his bride, the church. The body of Christ. When we say no to church, we are also saying no to Jesus Christ. Make no mistake. So why is it so critical that we belong to the church? Hopefully I've given some good reasons by now, but let's continue. You see, 
let's talk about the personal aspect of it. Inside you and I, every human being, there's a desire to belong, to be loved and cared for. It's just as much a very real part of you as your heart is, or the blood flowing through your veins. And for that reason, until you accept God's invitation to join his church, you won't ever truly be happy and fulfilled. And you'll forever feel like there's something missing. You'll experience loneliness, isolation, and emptiness because an important and essential ingredient is missing from your life. You see, we are born with holes in us. We are not whole. W-H-O-L-E. We are not whole. We are sinful. And one of those holes, H-O-L-E, that is missing is the church. It fills a role that God knows that we need in our lives. As I said earlier, moving on, God designed humanity for intimate community. We're not designed to be individuals. Going back to my example of sheep, we're all sheep. We need other sheep to hang out with. Otherwise, the wolves will get us. That lion will get us. What is one of those wolves? Well, just like I said, loneliness, emptiness, your life being meaningless. We live in a day and age, unfortunately, where people don't need to see each other to interact. They choose not to. They can go on email, chat rooms, cell phones, all sorts of things. The internet's replete with all sorts of ways to keep in touch without actually physically being there with that person. So studies indicate that, well, I don't think we need a study to indicate it, but as time has gone on, people are spending less time with friends and family simply because they can do it on their devices. So who cares? You know, why is this a concern? Well, uh, let's go over to uh, the UK. A British study discovered that lonely men over the age of 45 increased their odds of premature death by almost a quarter. The older a lonely man gets, the higher the risk. It kills you. It kills you. Loneliness, of course, leads to all sorts of physical and emotional damages. Yes. Cancer, suicide, untold effects on the body, the physical body. Is it any wonder why there's such a high rate of suicide amongst our people? Let's look at younger men. You see, when we don't have that hole in our heart that the church should be filling, we're lost. Young men don't have a purpose. The women, they feel like they don't have a purpose for those young white men out in the world. Young men want to be useful. They want to be used for something. They want to be a part of something. They want to construct things, build things, do things. And the church fills that hole by giving them something eternal to help be a part of and to build up. So let's go all the way back to creation now. So in creation, we know that God looked at his creation and he said, it's very good. However, there's one time in creation that God said, 
not good. And that was when God looked upon man in his loneliness, and he said, it is not good for man to be alone. It is not good for man to be alone. Could it be that God made a mistake? Could there be flaws in our human circuitry? Did God forget to add something? Maybe he went overboard on something? Well, hold on a second, because God isn't capable of making mistakes. He simply isn't. He cannot make a mistake. God is perfect. And another thing we have to consider is when God created Adam, this was when he was still perfect, right? So why was he calling it? What, would it have been any fault of, or incorrect thing that he did to Adam? No, but he still said it wasn't very good for him to be alone. And that's why God created Eve, for Adam not to be alone. He created us to be in a relationship. Men and women, we all need relationships. Therefore, isolation and confinement, ignoring a person, are some of the cruelest forms of punishment about. What do we see in prisons, supermax prisons? What is the big punishment that they do in there? Solitary confinement, right? Yes. Where they don't have any interaction with any people. They don't see the person who's giving them their food. They just open this little tiny slot, give them their food and, or whatever the slop is, and then they scuttle off and do their business elsewhere. And that person sits in isolation by themselves. Now, a lot of studies have been done on this solitary confinement, and it's extremely damaging. Mentally, emotionally, it, it can destroy a prisoner. It can make you go insane. Some of these prisoners and people are going insane. So the word church, as we uh, start winding our lesson down here, let's look at the church a little bit more. The word church, in the language of the New Testament, means called out ones. We know that the church in the New Testament is from the Greek ekklesia. It's a living, breathing community of people. Other words that Jesus uses for the New Testament church are disciples. Disciples. These are living people used in plural, implying, once again, community and relationships. Community and relationships. One that we've looked at, the bride. An intimate relationship. Interdependence, not independence. Got two different words there. Interdependence means you rely on each other, not you rely on yourself in independence. We rely on God as his bride. How about body? A vital living organism made up of many parts, each one essential to the health and function of the whole. If you're missing a body part, you'll know it. And you'll miss that body part. Living stones, creating a living temple. Again, emphasizing the importance that each one makes the whole. A stone on its own is not much use, but when each stone takes that specific spot, that spot it has for you in the church, all of a sudden it becomes important. It becomes useful. But by yourself, you're just a pile of rocks. Growing weeds, if you're lucky. How about another one? Family of God. We all know that uh, 
that song in our little blue prayer book there in the back. I think it's song number two, if I'm not mistaken. I'm sorry, it's song number one and number two. So the first one is family of God. I'm so glad I belong to the family of God. And then number two, we're all part of the family. Once again, what is a family? It's a dynamic, vital relationship. Vital relationship. You see, I challenge you to find somewhere in the Bible where you can find a description of the church or of a Christian that implies isolation or being separate or alone is a good thing. If anything, such behavior is disapproved of. Why? Because we're designed for community, for belonging. Now, I know you might be saying, well, God tells us to be called out and separate. Yes, from the world as a community. We're not to be individualistic. We're not to be islands of our own. Let's look at some more benefits of the church. It identifies you as a genuine believer. After all, in God's word we read, By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. What is it about this church? We have love one for another, do we not? If we stick through it with each other, maybe we'll have squibbles and squabbles here and there. But if we fight through those to come forth with love at the end and forgiveness, that's true love. We don't run off at the first sign of difficulty or the first sign of, you hurt my feelings, I'm going to go run away now. No, we stand. We act like men. We ask forgiveness. We seek forgiveness. We're humble to hear words of improvement, words of admonishment, words of, hey, brother, it's probably not that good that we should be doing that. We're Christians. We're God's people. We don't do that. Are we humble enough to hear that? Are we humble enough to do something about that without our prideful feelings being hurt? Another benefit of belonging to the church. It gives us a place where we find a sense of belonging, acceptance, mutual love and care. It moves us away from selfish isolation which, of course, we found leads to all sorts of problems. So, I don't know about you people, but when I'm out in a work meeting, or I'm out in the world, I can't be myself. I can't truly be myself. Because I think that uh, they'd be pretty disgusted with that. Oh, you hate transvestism, you hate homosexuality. But here, I can truly be myself. Here we can be ourselves amongst each other and love God. You and I, we all have major contributions to make. That is a benefit of belonging to a church. You are needed. And the strength and development of others may very well depend on you. Our future generations, they depend on us. We have much to give, both to God and to our brothers and sisters here in the church. In the midst of God's people, that's where you find your purpose. That's where you find your mission in life, what you were designed for. You see, a car with four flat tires 
isn't going to make it very far. We, like cars, are flat if we don't have a church in our lives. But when we have that church of Jesus Christ in our lives, it airs up those tires and it makes us go further in this life than we ever would without it. A church family will help you stand firm and keep strong. It'll help keep you from falling away from your calling and falling away from the lifestyle that God wants us to live, going and being like the world. We hold each other up. We strengthen each other. It's in the church that we learn the ability to love, to forgive, where we learn what grace and mercy mean. It's the place where God can mold us. You see, the church, it's simply not an option for God's people. It really isn't. It's an essential part of Christian life. You must have a church. Like one note in a piano, we're not that impressive by ourselves. However, when directed by our master, we become a wonderful song, attracting others to come and join. We might only hold one spot, that one note, but when we all come together, we create a symphony of praise to God. Ultimately, when we become a part of God's family, we end up fulfilling the purpose for which we were placed here on this planet. We end up doing what we were designed for, making God happy. God's unchanging plan has always been to bring us into his church, into his family, through Jesus Christ. Today, God is calling us to be a part of his very own family. What will be your decision? Will you stick to the church? Will you desire to be with the church through thick and thin, through difficulty? And if you don't have a church, will you try to find one where you are? Finding like-minded brothers and sisters in your area to gather together to create a church. Will you endeavor to do this? Or will you, like so many in the world today, like sinking ships out in the ocean by themselves, with no master to help them, sink off into the ocean, never to be seen again? You see, Christ loves us, and he gave himself for us. What will you give for him? He has given us so much, and he doesn't ask that much in return. Just our lives. May today be the day that we bring pleasure to God, the day that we place a smile on his face as we commit ourselves to being in his church. His church. Thank you for your time.